Aha! We caught you listening. And now we have you just where we want you. Welcome to ReSound, where each week we cast a very broad net to broadcast radio stories from around the world. Narratives, documentaries, features, investigative reports, humor, and more. Today, four segments. Ice music, where radio is served on the rocks. Hannah's suitcase, an extraordinary tale of a 13-year-old girl who perished at Auschwitz. Her suitcase and her long-lost brother. Basement Bangra, where hip-hop meets Bollywood. In the basement. And Stampede. Take cover. Oh, and the sound at the beginning? Intriguing, isn't it? Stay tuned and all will be revealed. So come, take a seat, take a ride, take a listen. Today, we're going to start with a piece that sort of sums up a lot about what radio has to offer. Interesting sound, little surprises, a talented producer, and a creative idea. It's called Ice Music, and it's a short piece by Gregory Whitehead, a producer slash performance artist slash playwright slash poet slash, you get the idea, from New York. This piece was done for All Things Considered in 1999. Here is Ice Music by Gregory Whitehead. Here at the... uh laboratory for innovation and acoustic research, we're always looking for ways to integrate creative sound into the rhythms of everyday life. So for example, this summer we have been developing a technique which permits us to freeze individual sounds, in this case, sounds from brass instruments, into ice cubes, transforming uh, that familiar icon of the American kitchen, the ice tray, into a recording device. theory, one could continue to add ice cubes and instruments, Uh, but in this case, we're presenting a brass choir of six voices to offer a few moments of gentle harmony an increasingly cacophonous world. From the Laboratory for Innovation and Acoustic Research, until next time, this is Gregory Whitehead.
Ice Music by Gregory Whitehead. A little insider info, his Laboratory for Innovation and Acoustical Research, the acronym is LIAR. Coming up on ReSound, Basement Bangra, Boogie, and the story of Hannah's suitcase. Stay tuned. For years, at the Children's Holocaust Education Center in downtown Tokyo, there was a suitcase that sat in a glass case. The suitcase belonged to Hannah Brady, who was born in Czechoslovakia and transported to Terezenstadt at the age of 11. Two years later, she was moved to Auschwitz, where she was killed. When the Children's Holocaust Education Center acquired the suitcase, no other information came with it, just the name Hannah Brady. But the center's director, Fumiko Ishioka, made it her mission to find out more. Her search took her to Toronto, where she found George Brady, Hannah's brother, the only surviving member of the Brady family. The story of Hannah's suitcase was produced by Karen Levine and is told by Fumiko Ishioka and George Brady. This suitcase, it looks really old, but maybe the materials are very nice and it, it's still, maybe you can use it still as a suitcase. But the keys are broken. And if you open it, you see these nice uh, colored paper lining inside. Of course, it doesn't have anything in it. It's, it's empty. It's an empty suitcase. The first time I heard about the suitcase was from some friends who went to Auschwitz and uh, it was displayed in the museum in, in Auschwitz on the pile of other suitcases. So I took my, at that time, 14-year-old daughter and we went together. And when we got to the museum, so we looked for the suitcase and couldn't find it. Then um, I uh, wrote to Auschwitz, and uh, about two months later, I got a photograph of this suitcase. That's what I got from Auschwitz about two years ago. It's quite big. Uh, the size is about 60 and 40 centimeters. The color is brown, and on the one side of suitcase, there's the owner's name, Hannah Brady. And then there's also her birthday, May 16th, 1931. And there's also a German word, Weisenkind, meaning orphan. That's all the information inscribed on the suitcase. The writing on the suitcase is definitely not my sister's because she would have never written herself Weissenkind or Orphan. We were always a family, a family, and we always thought that when the war ends that we will all get together again. It had this name and the birthday, so I looked at her birthday and then found out that she was 13 that time. So, was a little girl. So I 
really wanted to find out about her, what kind of girl she was, where she was born, what kind of family she had. And I knew that she died in Auschwitz. So I just wanted to find out what kind of girl she was before, before the Holocaust. Actually, I was uh, born in 1928, too, and my sister was born three years later. We lived in a small town in Moravia. We were, there were only two Jewish families. I was the only boy, and my sister was the only Jewish girl in, in town. So we, all our friends were Christian. We were very integrated. My father was a, a voluntary fireman. He was a football player. He became the chairman of the football team. There was a lot of skiing in our town. It was a very famous for cross-country skiing racers. He was the announcer, and uh, he played in the local theater. And my mother was a very vivacious, very... Uh, uh, lady and she laughed a lot, very loud always, we like that. And we had a lot of people coming to our house, artists, painters, and uh, which my father, the young ones, he supported, and, and poets and writers, and uh, because they always knew there was a good talk and uh, good food. At the same time, um, there were some poor people li living behind town, and my mother was always sending them some clothes or some food. And Hannah was the deliverer, and she loved to do it and kept bugging my mother if she can bring some more stuff to these people. Yeah, so we were, I would say, a very loving family. My, I remember my fa parents worked very hard. They, were, they both worked six days a week. We had a store. But on the seventh day, it was always on a Sunday. We climbed into the bed with mother and father. I was always with mother, and my little sister was with my father. Anna was a strong girl, if, uh, and I know it because when we were fighting, she wouldn't always lose. And uh, she, was, she had a blonde hair, blue eyes, and uh, I think a pretty, very pretty round face. And... Well, we used to uh, play a lot together. We had a big garden, and through the garden was going a creek, so we always played the navy. In winter, we again built uh, winter forts out of snow, and uh, she was a good sports uh, person. She, she skied, we skied cross-country. She was skating. Once I remember, she got a beautiful skating outfit. It was uh, red, and it had fur on the end of it, on the end on the, of the sleeves. And she was learning how to become an expert uh, skater. And uh, although she was only eight or nine years old, she was pretty good at it, and we all admired her. She learned uh, turning around, and I know pirouettes, whatever, I don't know the terms for these things, but she certainly enjoyed it, and we all enjoyed watching her. We had a lot of, lot of fun. Our center targets young people in Japan, so we organized this traveling exhibition, The Holocaust Seen Through Children's Eyes. We wanted uh, these artifacts that used to belong to children. And I went to Auschwitz in 1999, November, 
uh, asked for a loan of some children's materials, children's items, uh, and specifically asked, um, actually, I specifically asked a shoe, this little shoe, and I remember I asked for a suitcase because suitcase that really uh, tells you a story of uh, how this. Uh, Children who used to live happily with their family were transported and then again transported again and were allowed to take only one suitcase. So it uh, shows this uh, journey. Um, so I thought an object like suitcase would be a very important item to to really let children in Japan learn. What happened to children in the Holocaust? We had a very happy time until suddenly the Nazis appeared on the horizon. First in Germany, then in Austria, then the Sudetenland, and uh, then took over the, che- the rest of Czechoslovakia. From then on, one restriction after the other came into effect. First, we were allowed to shop only in certain stores. We were allowed to shop only at certain time. We were not allowed to go to movies. In 1940, I was 12, my sister was nine. We uh, were not allowed to go to school anymore. And uh, eventually, we had to wear a yellow star. Then my mother was arrested in Uh, the spring of 41. My father was then arrested in the fall of um, 41. And uh, we, lucky enough, had an uncle who was Christian living in the same town. So we, he was very brave to really take us in. And we stayed with him until we were called to report the 14th of May 1942 to go to. To Theresienstadt. On the 16th of May, that's two days later, when we were in this building waiting for to be deported, my sister celebrated her 11th birthday. I first I got this suitcase from Auschwitz, so I wrote to them again and asked for any information they have. But they said that、uh, they couldn't help me in any way. And then I tried other big Holocaust museums, in, in one in uh, uh, Israel, Yad Vashem, and I tried the、uh, other huge Holocaust museum in Washington, D.C., and they couldn't give me anything. But this museum of Auschwitz told me that、uh, she was transported from Terezin in Czechoslovakia. I was lucky to, to find that. I knew that the girls, little girls、uh, who were at Terezin, I knew that they drew paintings.、Uh, so I thought that Hannah might have been, Hannah, Hannah was 13 years old. So I thought that、uh, Hannah must be、uh, one of those girls and she must have left some drawings. So I wrote to the Terezin Ghetto Museum. I was so excited when they sent me these four pieces of Hannah's drawings. These drawings had her name. It was really, really so exciting. But 
when we opened the exhibition with this suitcase. It was uh, last year in July. That was all we had. In Theresienstadt, we stayed for over two years. My sister lived in this girl's home and I lived in the boy's home and we saw each other as much as we could. I always felt responsible for her, so I tried to uh, tell her what to do. And uh, she, at one point, got really sick. She got encephalitis, and I got really worried because that could uh, leave a damaged brain, and I just was horrified that I would bring her home and she wouldn't be in top shape. As it turned out, she recovered, and... uh, As I found out uh, through Japan lately uh, that she was even painting, secretly being taught, and her teacher was one of the famous German artists. Her name was Friedelike Brandeis, one of the uh, member of the Bauhaus, and uh, Gropius said about this lady, would she have lived? She would have been one of the greatest female artists of the century. I um, found out through the suitcase, which turned up in Japan, that uh, they have four of her paintings. I never knew that any of these paintings existed, so I asked them to send me a copy of it, which they did, and then I asked for an original copy from the museum in Prague, which I just got about three weeks ago. I was desperate to get the photo of her, so I thought that uh, if somebody has information on her, that has to be the, the museum, uh, the Terezin Museum. Uh, so I wrote to people there again, but uh, the, the answer was the same. So I decided that I'd just go to see if there's anything I can find out. We were in Terezin for two years, and... Uh, the war seemed to be turning against the, against Germany, and they decided to send 10 transport out east, as it turned out, to Auschwitz. I was called in the first transport, which was in September of '44, and uh, my sister was in the one next to the last one. Um, I was fortunate enough to pass the test because at that time they needed workers, so I looked strong enough and I just said that I'm healthy, so I passed the selection and went to work. My sister went in there next to the last transport and it was on the 23rd of October 1944. And since she was too small for work, so she was killed the next day. Before my sister went, just the day before the transport, she asked my cousin to do her hairdo because she wanted to uh, she wanted to look nice when she will meet me. Instead, when she got to Auschwitz, they cut her hair and then they killed her. I. Uh, I had no idea what happened to my sister after I left Terezin. So only when after the war, when I got home to my uncle and aunt, my aunt, who was in Terezin too, came back and explained that Hannah went to 
to Auschwitz. I was still hoping that somehow somewhere she will appear, but once I met a friend of hers and she just said point blank, she just went to gas, which I just nearly fainted. And that's how I found out. When I got there, I was really lucky to be able to meet with this one lady at the museum. She invited me into her office and she was trying to help me in any way. And we were look, both looking at this list of names of uh, people who were transported from Terezin to somewhere else. And there I found the name of Hannah. And right next to it, we found another Brady. So I asked, could this be her family? And then we looked at the, the birthdays, and it was, uh, the, there was three years difference. So they told me that uh, usually the families are listed uh, together. So she was sure that he must be her brother. And I asked them, do you have any idea where uh, in I mean, what he's doing. Um, because from the list, you can tell that uh, he survived. Hannah had a little check to, to show that she died, but he didn't have that mark. So I asked her if there's any way I can find out about him. And she looked really sad because she knew that I was so desperate. But she said she didn't know how I can find out about him. But then... She went back into her desk and she showed me another document which had names of Mr. George Brady, Hannah's brother, with the name of his bunkmate. They shared the, the bed in the Terrazin camp and she knew Mr. Brady's bunkmate. She knew that Mr. Brady's bunkmate is living in Prague I was supposed to leave the next day, so I had only half a day. But I ran back to Prague and ran into this Jewish museum in Prague. And there was this woman who had been helping me find Hannah's drawings. So she made a few phone calls to find out Mr. Brady's friend. And then he came over to see me at this office. We had only half an hour, but from him I was able to get uh, Mr. Brady's address in Canada. And suddenly, in last September, I got a letter from Japan, a big envelope. I was wondering who would write to me from Japan, and when I opened it, I couldn't believe it. I just was stunned, you know, I just couldn't, couldn't believe it. It's to the credit and incredible perseverance of Fumiko Ishioka, the director of the museum, that she decided to find who the owner was. And she went through a lot of problems to, and challenges to find it, but she did manage. Right after I went home, I wrote to Mr. Brady. But still, at that time, I wasn't sure if I could get any response from him, um, this might 
remind him of bitter memories, then he might not want to hear such a thing anymore. But a few weeks later, I got a nice letter from him and details about Hana and also this beautiful uh, photos of Hana. And I just screamed at that time and uh, my hands were shaking and uh, as I read the letter. But uh, the thing is that I was, of course, really excited to finally find Hana and find out what kind of girl she was when she was in Happy Days uh, and what she liked to do. She went skiing, skating, and a lot of details from Hana. It was unbelievable. But what really excited me is that uh, Hana's um, brother survived. And um, he now has such a beautiful family. I was so happy about that. Um, last week, uh, Fumiko Ishioka arrived and I invited her to stay with us in our house. She brought me paintings uh, from kids there and a video, again addressed to me and Hannah. And I couldn't believe how involved these children were, how, how taken they were by this, uh, this story. Um, Hannah and her suitcase, it was a very, very... Uh, moving uh, experience from an absolutely unexpected uh, part of the world. In Japan, the Holocaust is so far away. It's such a... Uh, some people don't see any connection whatsoever. But when they look at the suitcase, these children were really shocked that, that she was my age. And that really helped them a lot to really uh, focus on this one little life that was lost and they could really relate her to themselves and uh, really try to think about why such thing happened to a girl like her and why Jewish people and why children they then realized that there were one and a half million children like Hannah. Because of the suitcase, it is, it is very strange to me that nearly 60 years ago uh, this tragedy happened and now suddenly it appears in part of the world where I would have, that would be the last place in the, in, on the earth where I would have expected that it would appear. And it certainly changed uh, a lot of uh, my life and my my uh, family because everybody is affected by it and my uh, we have a young daughter who's 17 years old and she's called Lara Hana and she is actually going with me to Japan in in uh, March of this year because we would like to meet some of these kids and uh, help them to find a way of changing the world into a better world. We have a group of children called Small Wings, my center, 
uh, they are aged from 7 to 18. And even though they didn't know anything about Hana, they were so attracted to the suitcase and they they wanted to write a story on her. They invited their friends and they did a little performance using the suitcase. This one girl, 18-year-old girl, read the, the story they wrote. Hannah Brady, 13 years old, the owner of this suitcase, 54 years ago, May 18, 1942. It was two days after Hannah's 11th birthday. She was taken to Terezin in Czechoslovakia. October 23, 1944, crammed into the freight train, she was sent to Auschwitz. She was taken to the gas chamber right after. People were allowed to take only one suitcase with them. I wonder what Hannah put in her suitcase. Hannah would have been 69 years old now, but her life stopped when she was 13. I wonder what kind of girl she was. A few drawings she made at Terezin. These are the only things she left for us. What do these drawings tell us? Happy memories of her family? Her dream and hope for the future? Why was she killed? There was one reason. She was born Jewish. Name, Hannah Brady. Date of birth, May 16, 1931. Often. Actually, when our little daughter was born, I wanted her to be called Hannah, but my wife uh, decided, said that it, nobody should live somebody else's life. She should live her own life, and I'm very grateful that she suggested that. So we called her Lara Hannah. And, uh, and Lara Hannah knows a lot about the fate of Hannah and my fate and our family. And when we went to Auschwitz, it was a very emotional visit. And we somehow felt better that we lit three candles for these three. My mother, father, and Hannah. I always feel that I'm a well-adjusted person and I got over the war reasonably well, but there is one thing I cannot get over and that is my sister Hannah. And with this suitcase, it flared up again much more, not only with me, but with the rest of the family, because suddenly we have a lot uh, to remember and a lot to talk about. And uh, suddenly the aunt to my sons is uh, somebody uh, very close, close to them, and uh, and uh, we will never forget her. We small wings will tell every child in Japan what happened to Hana. 
we, small wings, will never forget what happened to one and a half million Jewish children. We, children, can make a difference to build peace in the world, so the Holocaust will never happen again. By small wings, December 2000, Tokyo, Japan. Hannah's Suitcase by producer Karen Levine for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's Sunday edition on Radio One. We're going to talk to Karen Levine in a minute, but first, more music from Fortet. This is the album Rounds. The story of Hannah's suitcase, the documentary we just heard, has grown considerably since the original airing of the radio program in 2001. We called producer Karen Levine to talk about her work on the project and to answer what everyone seems to wonder about once they hear the story. How and why did a children's Holocaust museum end up in Japan? It began with a group of friends who were actually concerned about 
the issue of bullying in Japanese schools, and we're looking for a way to teach Japanese children about difference and tolerance. And to make a long story short, they decided to develop a program around teaching about the Holocaust as one step in exposing Japanese children to both history and and uh, difference and tolerance. How did you find out about the story in the first place? How did it come to your attention? I read about it in um, a community newspaper, the Canadian Jewish News, and I knew the second I read it that I needed to <laughs> do something with this story. And in fact, um, that very day, I, I just looked George Brady up in the phone book and called him. And he was very open to talking with me, and he told me that Fumiko was about to arrive in the country for the first time the very next day. And so I spent time with both of them, and then I made the radio documentary, Hannah's Suitcase. What else has happened since the story aired? It's become a book, and then there are some other things in the works, aren't there? Yes. Uh, there has been interest from all over the world in the story. There will be a film, and there will be... Um, all the I's and T's are not um, dotted and crossed yet, but the, a play. And children send us beautiful poetry and artwork and prose about this story and about the impact the story has had on them. We're collecting all that and may put that together into into another book if if any of us ever catch our breath. <laughs> so the thing keeps growing constantly. And uh, it's a huge surprise to, to all of us. None of us ever expected that um, this would happen, but it has. Tell me about the book. The radio program uh, ran in um, January of 2001. And the second it was over on the radio, my friend uh, Margie called me, uh, who is the daughter of two Holocaust survivors, who also happens to be a book publisher. And she said, you have to turn this story into a book for young readers. But uh, I'm a radio producer. I had never written a book before and n never thought about it. So I didn't do anything right away. But the story had really um, got under my skin. And so about six months later, I started to write. And, uh, and so the book came out um, in May, um, two years ago. And um, and by the end of this year, it's going to be out in 27 countries around the world. It's just, um, it seems to have struck a chord, this story, uh, everywhere. Do you think that um, that's what makes this Holocaust story stand out from perhaps others or perhaps other histories that speaks to something larger or more universal to people? I don't think that it speaks to something more universal. I think it's the combination of... Um, the historical and the modern, the combination of the three continents, which is unusual. It's the mystery. But the thing that really attracted me to the story, because I'd done a fair bit of radio on this subject before, was the fact that it was not only a tragedy, that it w it is a tragedy, and at the center of it is a tragedy, but it's also a very uplifting story, an inspiring story. And that's, I think, what makes it unusual. Karen Levine, producer of Hannah's Suitcase.
And now a little music from the band Hi Jenna. If you're like me, and I always assume everyone is, of course, then the song we just played had the following effect on you. You thought, I love it. My God, who did it? I want a copy. But I have no idea who's who and what's what in the music world, and I don't even know where to look, and I used to know every musician and every band and every lick of every song, and my music collection was my pride and joy, and I think the last CD I bought was The Best of Earth, Wind, and Fire, and everyone at the CD store is wearing the high waters I gave away in 1976, and it's actually working for them. And how did my life get so pathetic, and when did I start complaining about being old, just like Aunt Irma? Or maybe you're already hip to it. In either case, you can never get enough great music which is why we want to play this next piece for you. It was produced by Jocelyn Gonzalez for a show called Studio 360 out of WNYC in New York. It's about bhangra, the traditional folk music of northern India. Basement bhangra, to be exact. DJ Reka, one of America's foremost proponents of bhangra, wants the music to be its own ambassador when she plays it at her monthly basement bhangra parties. Basement bhangra, I mean, in my house, growing up, we had basement parties. The connotation is underground. Just creating the space is so vital. Creating a space for people to go and be comfortable, and it not having to be a ghettoized space. A space that is defined musically by one idea, and in other ways by the bulk of the people there, but also open enough for others to come in. Uh, my name is Amita Swadin, and I'm a community organizer here in New York. Reka started throwing a benefit night called Your Attention Please um, once a month, where she would donate the proceeds from 7.30 to 9.30, and that's how my group, Youth Solidarity Summer, got involved with Basement Bangra. 
learning how to organize around social issues such as um, taxi workers' rights, immigrant rights, especially after September 11, um, organizing against the detentions that are happening. Yeah, my name is Chauncey Yearwood. I'm a black person. A Bangra party is a little is open to me. Indian culture, of course, you know, and most cultures have their reservation to you know opening themselves totally. You know, you learn other people, but. You know, everybody has their, their own cultural circles. Bhangra is like that, but at the same time, it's for everybody to enjoy. People come in from 7.30 to 9.30 because it's a little more chill then. It's not as crowded. And, you know, she tries to broaden the musical horizon during that time as well. You might hear some classical music, such as tabla or sitar, some singing, sometimes live dhol playing, which is the traditional drum used in Bhangra, um, sometimes spoken word and a more urban edge to South Asian identity. And then as the night continues around 9.30, her traditional spinning happens, which is the, the bhangra mixed with hip hop and reggae. So I think it exposes people to both a new art form that they might not have gone to see otherwise if it wasn't connected with basement, as well as a new social cause. And the music is, is, is the music that I had loved, that I'd started hearing as a teenager through my mom. And um, the thought of Basin Bongo was like, you know what, let's just go head first. There's like all these negative associations at that time for Punjabis specifically within the South Asian ethnicities as being loud and just like rowdy and, you know, and the music was associated with that. <laughs> Bhangra has also sort of been genericized within the community. I mean, people from South Asia come from so many different backgrounds, so many different languages, and all of a sudden Bhangra is presented, described, or appropriated as Indian music. You know, what is your connection to that? I like the beat, I like, I like the energy, you know, I like the, um, I like the way that it mixes like a contemporary vibe with the ancient kind of vibe, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's drawn from the past, but it's definitely right on, on, on time, right, with everything that's going on now. I mean, it's got a little reggae, it's got a little hip-hop influence. The home of Bhangra in the modern dance sense is, is the UK, is Birmingham. I'm not discounting the vocalists that come from India, and a lot of those Bhangra artists from other parts of the world really end up getting their production work and their stuff in the UK. And if I listen to old Punjabi folk records or old Punjabi bunga records, you don't hear the drums in that same way. Bringing out the drums, the dole, really making that the center of the music is how the music sort of evolved. Folks moved to Britain in the 50s, post-World War II Britain, to work in the factories, you know? The community there is it's more ethnically Punjabi, be it from India or Pakistan. There was more of an alienation within that community to the larger mainstream society there. So the need for maintaining cultural practices was greater. Based on Punga anthem classic, you know. <laughs> He's saying the song's called Darshan. Darshan is to visit, but it sort of is like 
really visit like with your mind and your soul. So it's like if I visit you in the morning, you know, the whole day is gonna be good for me. She's really putting the music on the map. It's just you know people that sample it, they're getting credit for bringing it out. You got Dr. Dre sampling it. You got Timbaland who's been using it. They hip hop artists. They really got a wide market right now. So they're getting known for bringing the music out, but it gets much much deeper. And Rekha has her finger on the pulse. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I love hip-hop, you know, and hip-hop is about finding the freshest new sounds, even if those sounds are old. I can't really say don't use that. What I do have problems with is when people don't credit where it comes from. Mississippi putting it down, I'm the hottest round. I told your mother, y'all can't stop me now. You know, I think, like, the stuff that Timberland and Missy Elliott did was really great. It sounded good. I mean, I think some of the other stuff is, is decorative. It's decoration. It's other musicians that do their one like mystical exotic track on their record that that i can't stand that i really i have no time patience for like yoga loving hippies i just can't <laughs> i hope that we're getting people hip to thinking about this music in a non-exotifying context showing other possibilities from that music it doesn't have to be the the signifier for exotic the signifier for weird South Asian music has become very popular, but if a South Asian woman walks out of her house and she's first generation in a full traditional dress of a sari and bindi, especially after 9-11, she might not necessarily be received in a healthy um, or welcoming light, whereas Gwen Stefani or Madonna wearing a bindi or mandi, which is the henna hand paint, is seen as something that's a fad and that's popular. And I think we really need to examine who's representing the culture and for whom are they portraying it. I think it's just as important that this thing, which just seems frivolous and like a party, gets all of a sudden, you know, noticed by mainstream media outlets. It's sort of creating a visibility that is important to the larger cause of us being in this country and not being outsiders. Showing us involved in music and DJ culture or whatever is important. I mean, everyone can't go to a peace rally and write up and those are great and those are good activities but I firmly believe that we can help most if we do what we're best at and then use that to help other people. Basement Bangra, produced by Jocelyn Gonzalez for Studio 360 at WNYC in New York. And now... For something completely different. In 1999, sound artist Chantal Dumas drove across Canada logging 20,000 kilometers in a van packed with recording equipment, a tent, a Coleman stove. You get the idea. What was she doing? Just looking for cool sounds. She came across our next selection in Austin, Manitoba at the annual Thresherman's reunion, whatever that is. The piece is a sound extravaganza, and it's called Stampede. <laughs> Here he comes. 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 Here he com
Cecil Brock and Roger Delorier's Ridge. Going into the first turn by about a length and a half over the Cecil Dave Brock and Roger Delorier's Ridge. Brock and Roger Delorier's Ridge. Rig around and a half over the Dave Anderson Ridge. Cecil Brock and Roger Delorier's Ridge. Rig around and a half over the Dave Anderson Ridge. Going into the first turn. Going into the first turn, by about a length and a half over the Dave Anderson Ridge. Running third. Remember, they'll stay on the rail. They're going to make their move on the back stretch or on the clubhouse turn. Sunrise welding out in front. See Sabrock fading just a little bit. Sunrise welding out in front. And a half over the Dave Anderson Ridge. Sunrise welding out in front. Third, Dave Anderson running second. And see Sunrise welding out in front. Sabrock and Roger Delorier Ridge are out in the lead right now. Sunrise welding here he comes. Sobrock, he's Sobrock, he's Sobrock, looking Brock, looking for, for the track, track time, for the, looking for the, for the track time. He's Sobrock, looking for the track time of 102. Track time, track time. Sunrise, well, the glory is regular. Sobrock and the Roger, the glory is regular. Sobrock and the Roger, the glory is regular. Stampede by sound artist Chantal Dumas. Stampede is part of a larger work called Little Man in the Ear. Painter Sam Gilliam doesn't do anything on a small scale. When he paints, he does it on a 17-foot canvas. When he stirs, he stirs a five-gallon bucket of paint. And when he heaves those buckets onto that big, long canvas, it's, well, talk about a broad stroke. The sound was recorded years ago, and we pulled it out of the vault just because it, it sounded so cool. Doesn't it? Now let's hear a little something from the creator, Sam Gilliam. I really learned to paint by listening to music. What I wanted in painting wasn't there, but what I heard with my ears, the improvisational sound of, of jazz seemed to have been more like the kind of artist I wanted to be, the kind of paintings I wanted to paint, and almost the kind of person that I wanted to paint. So I started imitating the music. It made me feel new. I have a selection of rakes or tools. I always felt that standing on the floor of the studio was like standing on the earth. And that the more that I wanted to free myself from thinking about painting and the complications of painting, I'd reach for one of the tools and sort of would rake or would pull the paint. And that's like working on the, on the land, being one with my medium, and thus I'd solve the problems of paint. Sam Gilliam. Sound for sound's sake. 
ReSound. Before we go, a little music. The band is Sufjan Stevens from the album Enjoy Your Rabbit. That's it for tonight's show. Thanks for joining us. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. The program is produced by myself, Gwen Maxi, and Katia Dunn, and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Thanks to Eric Rudd for engineering help. You can hear today's program at chicagopublicradio.org slash resound. And while you're at it, you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world at thirdcoastfestival.org. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Sarah Lee Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at chicagopublicradio.org. ReSound returns next Sunday at 5 with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else. Good night. (laughs) 